Chapter Five of At the Villa Rose by A. E. W. Mason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five in the Salon. Julius Ricardo pushed aside the curtains with a thrill of excitement. He found himself standing within a small oblong room which was prettily, even daintily furnished. On his left, close by the recess, was a small fireplace with the ashes of a burnt-out fire in the grate. Beyond the grate, a long settee covered in pink damask, with a crumpled cushion at each end, stood a foot or two away from the wall, and beyond the settee the door of the room opened into the hall. At the end a long mirror was let into the panelling, and a writing-table stood by the mirror. On the right were the three windows, and between the two nearest to Mr. Ricardo was the switch of the electric light. A chandelier hung from the ceiling, an electric lamp stood upon the writing-table, a couple of electric candles on the mantel-shelf. A round satin-wood table stood under the windows, with three chairs about it, of which one was overturned, one was placed with its back to the electric switch, and the third on the opposite side facing it. Ricardo could hardly believe that he stood actually upon the spot where, within twelve hours, a cruel and sinister tragedy had taken place. There was so little disorder. The three windows on his right showed him the blue sunlit sky, and a glimpse of flowers and trees. Behind him the glass door stood open to the lawn, where birds piped cheerfully, and the trees murmured of summer. But he saw Anno stepping quickly from place to place, with an extraordinary lightness of step for so big a man, obviously engrossed, obviously reading here and there some detail, some custom of the inhabitants of that room. Ricardo leaned with careful artistry against the wall. "'Now, what has this room to say to me?' he asked importantly. Nobody paid the slightest attention to his question, and it was just as well, for the room had very little information to give him. He ran his eye over the white Louis Seize furniture, the white panels of the wall, the polished floor, the pink curtains. Even the delicate tracery of the ceiling did not escape his scrutiny. Yet he saw nothing likely to help him but an overturned chair and a couple of crushed cushions on a settee. It was very annoying, all the more annoying because M. Hanaud was so uncommonly busy. Hanaud looked carefully at the long settee and the crumpled cushions and he took out his measure, and measured the distance between the cushion at one end and the cushion at the other. He examined the table, he measured the distance between the chairs, he came to the fireplace and raked in the ashes of the burnt-out fire. But Ricardo noticed a singular thing. In the midst of his search Hanaud's eyes were always straying back to the settee, and always with a look of extreme perplexity, as if he read there something, definitely something but something which he could not explain. Finally he went back to it. He drew it farther away from the wall, and suddenly with a little cry he stooped and went down on his knees. When he rose he was holding some torn fragments of paper in his hand. He went over to the writing-table and opened the blotting-book. Where it fell open there were some sheets of note-paper, and one particular sheet of which half had been torn off. He compared the pieces which he held with that torn sheet, and seemed satisfied. There was a rack for note-paper upon the table, and from it he took a stiff card. "'Get me some gum or paste, and quickly,' he said. His voice had become brusque, the politeness had gone from his address. He carried the card and the fragments of paper to the round table. 
There he sat down, and with infinite patience, gummed the fragments onto the card, fitting them together like the pieces of a Chinese puzzle. The others over his shoulders could see spaced words, written in pencil, taking shape as a sentence upon the card. Anno turned abruptly in his seat toward Wethermill. "'You have no doubt a letter written by Mademoiselle Celie?' Wethermill took his letter-case from his pocket, and a letter out of the case. He hesitated for a moment as he glanced over what was written. The four sheets were covered. He folded back the letter, so that only the two inner sheets were visible, and handed it to Anno. Anno compared it with the handwriting upon the card. "'Look,' he said at length, and the three men gathered behind him. On the card the gummed fragments of paper revealed a sentence. "'Je ne sais pas.' "'I do not know,' said Ricardo. "'Now this is very important.' Beside the card, Celia's letter to Wethermill was laid. "'What do you think?' asked Hanaud. Bénard, the commissaire of police, bent over Hanaud's shoulder. Uh, "'There are strong resemblances,' he said guardedly. Ricardo was on the lookout for deep mysteries. Resemblances were not enough for him. They were inadequate to the artistic needs of the situation. "'Both were written by the same hand,' he said definitely. Only in the sentence written upon the card, the handwriting is carefully disguised. Ah, said the commissaire, bending forward again, here is an idea. Yes, yes, there are strong differences. Ricardo looked triumphant. Yes, there are differences, said Hanaud. Look how long the upstroke of the P is, how it wavers. See how suddenly this S straggles off, as though some emotion made the hand shake. Yet this— and touching Wethermill's letter he smiled ruefully. This is where the emotion should have affected the pen. He looked up at Wethermill's face, and then said quietly, "'You have given us no opinion, monsieur. Yet your opinion should be the most valuable of all. Were these two papers written by the same hand?' "'I do not know,' answered Wethermill. "'And I, too,' cried Hanaud, in a sudden exasperation, "'je ne sais pas. I do not know.' It may be her hand carelessly counterfeited, it may be her hand disguised, it may be simply that she wrote in a hurry with her gloves on. It may have been written some time ago, said Mr. Ricardo, encouraged by his success to another suggestion. No, that is the one thing it could not have been, said Hanaud. Look round the room. Was there ever a room better tended? Find me a little pile of dust in any one corner if you can. It is all as clean as a plate. Every morning, except this one morning, this room has been swept and polished. The paper was written and torn up yesterday." He enclosed the card in an envelope as he spoke, and placed it in his pocket. Then he rose and crossed again to the settee. He stood at the side of it, with his hands clutching the lapels of his coat, and his face gravely troubled. After a few moments of silence for himself, of suspense for all the others who watched him, he stopped suddenly. Slowly, and with extraordinary care, he pushed his hands under the head-cushion, and lifted it up gently, so that the indentation of its surface might not be disarranged. He carried it over to the light of the open window. The cushion was covered with silk, and as he held it to the sunlight, all could see a small brown stain. Anno took his magnifying-glass from his pocket, and bent his head over the cushion. But at that moment, careful though he had been, the down swelled up within the cushion, the folds and indentations disappeared, the silk covering was stretched smooth. 
Oh, cried Bénard tragically, what have you done? Hanaud's face flushed. He had been guilty of a clumsiness, even he. Mr. Ricardo took up the tale. Yes, he exclaimed, what have you done? Hanaud looked at Ricardo in amazement at his audacity. Well, what have I done? he asked. Come, tell me. You have destroyed a clue, replied Ricardo impressively. The deepest dejection at once overspread Hanaud's burly face. Don't say that, Monsieur Ricardo. I beseech you, he implored. A clue, and I have destroyed it. But what kind of a clue? And how have I destroyed it? And to what mystery would it be a clue if I hadn't destroyed it? And what will become of me when I go back to Paris, and say in the Rue de Jérusalem, Let me sweep the cellars, my good friends, for Monsieur Ricardo knows that I destroyed a clue. Faithfully he promised me that he would not open his mouth, but I destroyed a clue, and his perspicacity forced him into speech. It was the turn of M. Ricardo to grow red. Hanaud turned with a smile to Bénard. It does not really matter whether the creases in this cushion remain, he said. We have all seen them, and he replaced the glass in his pocket. He carried that cushion back and replaced it. Then he took the other which lay at the foot of the settee, and carried it in its turn to the window. This was indented, too, and ridged up, and just at the marks the nap of the silk was worn, and there was a slit where it had been cut. The perplexity upon Hanaud's face greatly increased. He stood with the cushion in his hands, no longer looking at it, but looking out through the doors at the footsteps so clearly defined, the footsteps of a girl who had run from this room and sprung into a motor-car and driven away. He shook his head, and, carrying back the cushion, laid it carefully down. Then he stood erect, gazed about the room, as though even yet he might force its secrets out from its silence, and cried with a sudden violence, "'There is something here, gentlemen, which I do not understand.' Mr. Ricardo heard someone beside him draw a deep breath, and turned. Wethermill stood at his elbow. A faint colour had come back to his cheeks. His eyes were fixed intently upon Hanaud's face. "'What do you think?' he asked, and Hanaud replied brusquely. "'It's not my business to hold opinions, monsieur. My business is to make sure.' There was one point, and only one, of which he had made every one in that room sure. He had started confident. Here was a sordid crime, easily understood. But in that room he had read something which had troubled him, which had raised the sordid crime onto some higher and perplexing level. "'Then M. Fleuriot, after all, might be right?' asked the commissaire timidly. Hanaud stared at him for a second, then smiled. "'L'affaire Dreyfus?' he cried. "'Oh, la, la, la! No, but there is something else.' "'What was that something?' Ricardo asked himself. He looked once more about the room. He did not find his answer, but he caught sight of an ornament upon the wall, which drove the question from his mind. The ornament, if so it could be called, was a painted tambourine, with a bunch of bright ribbons tied to its rim, and it was hung upon the wall between the settee and the fireplace, at about the height of a man's head. Of course it might be no more than it seemed to be, a rather gaudy and vulgar toy, such as a woman like Madame Dauvray would be very likely to choose in order to dress her walls but it swept Ricardo's thoughts back of a sudden to the concert-hall at Leamington and the apparatus of a spiritualistic show. 
After all, he reflected triumphantly, Hanaud had not noticed everything, and as he made the reflection, Hanaud's voice broke in to corroborate him. "'We have seen everything here. Let us go upstairs,' he said. "'We will first visit the room of Mademoiselle Celie. Then we will question the maid, Hélène Vauquier.' The four men, followed by Perrichet, passed out by the door into the hall and mounted the stairs. Celia's room was in the southwest angle of the villa, a bright and airy room, of which one window overlooked the road, and two others, between which stood the dressing-table, the garden. Behind the room a door led into a little white-tiled bathroom. Some towels were tumbled upon the floor beside the bath. In the bedroom a dark grey frock of tussour and a petticoat were flung carelessly on the bed. A big grey hat of ottoman silk was lying upon a chest of drawers in the recess of a window, and upon a chair a little pile of fine linen and a pair of grey silk stockings, which matched in shade the grey suede shoes, were tossed in a heap. "'It was here that you saw the light at half-past nine, Hanaud said, turning to Perrichet. "'Yes, monsieur,' replied Perrichet. "'We may assume, then, that Mademoiselle Celie was changing her dress at that time?' Bénard was looking about him, opening a drawer here, a wardrobe there. "'Mademoiselle Celie,' he said with a laugh, "'was a particular young lady, and fond of her fine clothes, "'if one may judge from the room and the order of the cupboards. "'She must have changed her dress last night in an unusual hurry.' There was about the whole room a certain daintiness, almost, it seemed to Mr. Ricardo, a fragrance, as though the girl had impressed something of her own delicate self upon it. Wethermill stood upon the threshold, watching with a sullen face the violation of this chamber by the officers of the police. No such feelings, however, troubled Hanaud. He went over to the dressing-room and opened a few small leather cases which held Celia's ornaments. In one or two of them a trinket was visible. Others were empty. One of these latter Hanaud held open in his hand, and for so long the Bénard moved impatiently. "'You see it is empty, monsieur,' he said, and suddenly Wethermill moved forward into the room. "'Yes, I see that,' said Hanaud dryly. It was a case made to hold a couple of long eardrops, those diamond eardrops, doubtless, which Mr. Ricardo had seen twinkling in the garden. "'Will monsieur let me see?' asked Wethermill, and he took the case in his hands. "'Yes,' he said, "'Mademoiselle Celie's eardrops.' and he handed the case back with a thoughtful air. It was the first time he had taken a definite part in the investigation. To Ricardo the reason was clear. Harry Wethermill had himself given those eardrops to Celia. Hanaud replaced the case and turned round. "'There is nothing more for us to see here,' he said. "'I suppose that no one has been allowed to enter the room?' And he opened the door. "'No one except Hélène Vauquier,' replied the commissaire. Ricardo felt indignant at so obvious a piece of carelessness. Even Wethermill looked surprised. Hanaud merely shut the door again. "'Oh, ho, the maid,' he said. "'Then she has recovered.' "'She is still weak,' said the commissaire. "'But I thought it was necessary that we should obtain at once a description of what Celie Harland wore when she left the house. I spoke to Monsieur Fleuriot about it, and he gave me permission to bring Hélène Vauquier here.' who alone can tell us. I brought her here myself just before you came. She looked through the girl's wardrobe to see what was missing. Was she alone in the room? 
Not for a moment, said M. Bénard haughtily. Really, monsieur, we are not so ignorant of how an affair of this kind should be conducted. I was in the room myself the whole time, with my eye upon her. That was just before I came, said Hanaud. He crossed carelessly to the open window which overlooked the road, and leaning out of it looked up the road to the corner round which he and his friends had come, precisely as the commissaire had done. Then he turned back into the room. Which was the last cupboard or drawer that Hélène Vauquier touched? he asked. This one. Bénard stooped and pulled open the bottom drawer of a chest, which stood in the embrasure of the window. A light-coloured dress was lying at the bottom. I told her to be quick, said Bénard, since I had seen that you were coming. She lifted this dress out, and said that nothing was missing there. So I took her back to her room and left her with the nurse. Hanaud lifted the light dress from the drawer shook it out in front of the window, twirled it round, snatched up a corner of it and held it to his eyes, and then, folding it quickly, replaced it in the drawer. Now show me the first drawer she touched. And this time he lifted out a petticoat, and taking it to the window, examined it with a greater care. When he had finished with it, he handed it to Ricardo to put away, and stood for a moment or two thoughtful and absorbed. Ricardo in his turn examined the petticoat but he could see nothing unusual. It was an attractive petticoat, dainty with frills and lace, but it was hardly a thing to grow thoughtful over. He looked up in perplexity, and saw that Hanaud was watching his investigations with a smile of amusement. "'When M. Ricardo has put that away,' he said, "'we will hear what Hélène Vauquier has to tell us.' He passed out of the door at last, and, locking it, placed the key in his pocket. Hélène Vauquier's room is, I think, upstairs, he said, and he moved towards the staircase. But as he did so, a man in plain clothes, who had been waiting upon the landing, stepped forward. He carried in his hand a piece of thin, strong whipcord. Ah, Durette, cried Bénard. Monsieur Hanaud, I sent Durette this morning round the shops of Aix, with the cord which was found knotted round Madame Dauvray's neck. Hanaud advanced quickly to the man. Well, did you discover anything? Yes, monsieur, said Durette. At the shop of Monsieur Corval, in the rue du Casino, a young lady in a dark grey frock and hat bought some cord of this kind at a few minutes after nine last night. It was just as the shop was being closed. I showed Corval the photograph of Celie Harland, which Monsieur le Commissaire gave me out of Madame Dauvray's room, and he identified it as the portrait of the girl who had bought the cord. Complete silence followed upon Durette's words. The whole party stood like men stupefied. No one looked towards Wethermill. Even Hanaud averted his eyes. "'Yes, that is very important,' he said awkwardly. He turned away, and, followed by the others, went up the stairs to the bedroom of Hélène Vauquier. End of chapter 5